Today on Blue 58, as we finish our look at the Packers' 2019 opponents, we reach a stretch of teams whose 2018 seasons were derailed for a variety of somewhat unusual reasons. How scared should the Packers be of these unknown quantities? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here yet again. A lot of interesting stuff going on towards the end of the Packers' 2019 schedule. And really before they reach that end portion where they play three NFC North games in a row to close out the season, weeks 15, 16, and 17 against the uh, their NFC North opponents, uh, they've got a group of games that are against teams were a little bit hard to figure out. Of course, they have that bye week in week 11, but weeks 12, 13, and 14 are a little bit odd. So let's look at these last three opponents of the Packers' 2019 schedule, at least the last three that we haven't looked at yet. There are those final three games of the year against teams that we have already discussed. If you haven't listened to those previous episodes, go and check those out as well. As you remember, we are looking at each of these Packers' 2019 opponents by asking four significant questions. What were they in 2018? What was their biggest offensive addition throughout the offseason? What was their biggest defensive addition in this offseason? Then how concerned should we be about this team heading into the season? With the caveats, of course, that it is July and a lot can change between now and the time that the Packers play their opponents, especially these few teams, because it's going to be practically the end of the season. It'll be November by the time we see some of these teams. Let's start, though, with the San Francisco 49ers. The Packers will play them in Week 12 in San Francisco. What were they in 2018? They were a knee ligament, uh, particular. In, in particular, they were Jimmy Garoppolo's knee ligament. He tore his ACL early in the 49ers season, and that was all she wrote for the San Francisco 49ers. Things were going well, but then Garoppolo got hurt, and that was that. Even if a couple backup quarterbacks did really scare a couple teams, including the Packers, it should be mentioned, last year. And that is a big testament to the coaching prowess of one Kyle Shanahan. He kept the 49ers competitive, though their season was over, and everybody knew it as soon as Garoppolo got hurt. To that point, Jimmy Garoppolo might be their biggest offensive addition this offseason. If he is who they think he is, a franchise-level quarterback, nothing else really matters for the 49ers this offseason because that's the most valuable commodity in the NFL. If you have a starting quarterback who is really good, nothing else really matters for you on offense. You can get it figured out. Obviously, things other than the quarterback do matter, but nothing matters as much as the quarterback. You can get those other things kind of worked out around the quarterback. If you don't have that quarterback, you're not really a team yet. It's going to take you a while to get to that point. And until you are you are at the point where you have that starting quarterback, you're an also-ran in the NFL. And that's what the 49ers were last year. Outside of Garoppolo, it's wide receivers. The 49ers took the unusual step of adding two in the first three rounds of the draft. Actually, in back-to-back rounds, as a matter of fact, one in the second and one in the third. Debo Samuel was the second-round pick, and Jalen Hurd was their third-round pick. Hurd in the third. Listen to that. Sounds like a Pert Hapley joke of some kind. The pieces are there. Figure it out in your own. Um, The point is, two interesting weapons there for Jimmy Garoppolo and Kyle Shanahan to work with. In particular, I like Debo Samuel out of those two. I wouldn't have minded at all had the Packers 
looked his direction in the second round. They didn't. I'm fine with that, uh, but I wouldn't have complained at all either. Their biggest defensive addition, you've got two to choose from as well here. It could be D. Ford, who the, they acquired uh, for the price of a 2020 second round draft pick and a big contract extension, five years, $85 million to be precise. Uh, he, of course, you will remember, was uh, the Kansas City Chiefs franchise player who they traded to the 49ers after kind of working out something with the Seahawks to get Frank Clark, who was the Seahawks franchise player. A lot of franchise players shifting teams during this 2019 offseason. You could also make a case, I think, that uh, Nick Bosa was the uh, most notable defensive addition for the 49ers this offseason. I wouldn't argue with that on with you on that either. He was the second overall pick in this spring's draft. That was kind of a foregone conclusion too. Everybody seemed pretty set on uh, Kyler Murray at one and Nick Bosa at two, and that's exactly how it worked out. So how concerned should we be about the 49ers? Based on how they played the Packers last year, and based based on how they figured to improve by adding in their franchise quarterback and two solid pass rushers, I would say pretty concerned. It's tough to say for sure, since they haven't necessarily shown us a ton yet, but if Jimmy Garoppolo makes the 49ers offense say like 10% better, 15% better, and D. Ford and Nick Bosa help their defense, that has the makings of a pretty good team. If you can get a franchise quarterback and rush the opposing passer, you're in pretty good shape. That's a pretty good start. And between those three players, the 49ers have to feel like they're on the way to doing that. In week 13, however, the Packers will play a much different team, albeit one that also had some significant question marks in 2018. Are those questions answered heading into 2019? Absolutely not. That is the New York Giants, everybody. What were they in 2018? As a franchise, they were a drowning man tied to a millstone named Eli Manning. For whatever reason, the Giants are just still in love with Eli Manning, who hasn't been a good quarterback since like 2014, maybe earlier than that. They were 5-11 last year, came in last in the NFC East, and nobody was really surprised at that. And they really haven't done a ton to change the team for the better ever since. Their biggest offensive addition in 2019 so far has to be Daniel Jones, who the Giants took sixth overall to the surprise of literally everyone other than Dave Gettleman, I think. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode with the Raiders and Cleland Farrell, and I think the question is fair again here. Because if Daniel Jones is a guy you really like and you've got the pick, is it necessarily the, the worst idea in the world to take him? That, of course, depends on him actually being good. But as we've kind of already laid out with the 49ers, if you don't have a quarterback, do you really have anything? That, of course, is also assuming that Daniel Jones is good. Again, But if he is good, does it matter where they took him? Sixth overall? Third overall? First overall? 
if he turns out to be good, if he turns out to be the answer at quarterback, do you really want to try to make it more complicated for yourself than you than you should by trading back or trying to get him later or whatever? Of course, there is the caveat to this that most people who evaluate these sorts of things don't think he's any good. And some people didn't think he should be drafted at all, at least not in like the first three or four rounds. Some people thought he was the worst quarterback in this draft. I don't have an opinion on whether or not he's good. I just wonder about the process. And is this a good use of the asset that the Giants had, that sixth overall pick? Because that's really what being a general manager is about, maximizing the assets that you have. Is it maximizing your assets to take Daniel Jones sixth overall? Well, again, if he turns out to be good, yes. But the problem is, nobody seems to think he's going to be that good. Outside of Daniel Jones, we could talk about Kevin Zeitler as far as an offensive addition who's actually going to make a difference for the Giants this year, but we will get to that in a second. Their biggest defensive addition has to be Jabril Peppers. But you can't talk about Jabril Peppers and you can't talk about Kevin Zeitler without talking about the trade. Really, it was two trades, but functionally, it works out to be one trade. So let's just talk about it as though it is one giant trade. The Giants got Jabril Peppers, Kevin Zeitler, a 2019 first-round pick, and a 2019 third-round pick from the Cleveland Browns. Not a bad haul. That sounds pretty okay. However, they had to give up Odell Beckham Jr. and Olivier Vernon to get all those pieces. To me, this seems again like not having a plan. You can argue about the results of something, and that's fine. You really don't want to necessarily play the results on something. I think that's a poor way to evaluate things. I think the best way to evaluate any event in professional sports is by looking at the process. Can you see the thought process here? And it's just so hard to look at this trade, the Odell Beckham parts in particular, and see something that makes any kind of sense. You've got one of the transcendent talents in the NFL regardless of position. He's young. You just signed him to a big deal. And you've already paired him with a running back the year prior, kind of on the entire premise that your offense is just an explosive talent away from really taking off. That it doesn't matter who your quarterback is because you've got so many pieces on offense. But now, after passing on a quarterback in a quarterback heavy draft to take that running back, you trade one of your two super explosive offensive pieces and put your other offensive piece into an offense where you really have no dynamic quarterback talent. It just, it doesn't seem to make sense. And if you were a Giants fan, I I don't know how you tolerate this. I don't know how you stomach this at all. I don't know what I would tell you 
to make you feel better here. Because Jabril Peppers and Kevin Zeitler, though both nice players, are not going to offset the loss of a guy like Odell Beckham Jr. Neither of them are transcendent talents at their position. It just it boggles the mind why this happened, how this happened, the thought process behind it. It, I, it doesn't make any sense. So how concerned should we be about the New York Giants? I am pretty comfortable having extremely low expectations for the Giants this season. I am not concerned about them at all. Um, just not worried about the Giants. So I think we're just going to move on. Let's talk about the Washington Redskins, another unusual team. Um, and a tough one to project after their, again, unusual 2018 season. In 2018, they were a big, dumb pain in the butt. I kind of just say that because they beat the Packers early in the season. But they were actually pretty okay until Alex Smith's leg just about fell off late in the season there. Heading into week 11, you may have forgotten that the Redskins were riding pretty high. They were playing well. Alex Smith was playing well. They were 6-3 and three. heading into that week 11 game against the Houston Texans. Then Alex Smith got his lower leg rearranged. They lost that game against the Texans. Then they lost five of their next six to finish the season seven and nine. And you know what? I kind of understand it. We kind of needled the Panthers last week a little bit or in the last episode for their seven game skid towards the end of the, their season. But man, if you were going along so well, six and three, things were clicking, your quarterback who seems well-respected everywhere he goes, if not for his transcendent talent, for the player that he is, for the work he puts in, for the results that he gets, even without being a transcendent talent. You're humming along, and then your guy, Alex Smith, under experiences an absolutely horrific injury. And it is truly horrific. I, I don't use that word, word lightly. Uh, bones sticking out of skin, still in a, in an immobilizing device here months later, talking about him maybe never walking again on that leg, the word amputation coming up in the, in the recovery process. That's about as bad as it gets. And to have that happen in the middle of a season where things are going well for you, I mean, it's understandable why you end up losing five of your next six and finishing seven and nine. It's hard not to just pack it in at that point and say, yep, that's a real bummer. We'll come back next year. This directly ties to their biggest offensive addition for this offseason. Dwayne Haskins, the quarterback out of Ohio State, who the Redskins got 17th overall. He's their quarterback of the future and also probably their quarterback of the present. They played this extremely well. Washington did, it seems like, in the 2019 draft. For the first time, it seems like Washington just sat back and let everything kind of come to them. And they ended up with Dwayne Haskins at 17 after people thought they might have to trade up to get him to like 12th, maybe swapping with the Packers there. They got him there. Uh, They got Montez Sweat at 26, a great first round for the Washington Redskins, it seems like at least. Dwayne Haskins seems like a fine player. He's probably going to have to play right out of the gate, although the the Washington Redskins are kind of slow walking this a little bit. 
uh, pretending like, eh, maybe not. Maybe we traded for Case Keenum, and he's maybe going to start the start of the season. Let's be real here. It's going to be Dwayne Haskins. That's probably in the best interest of everybody involved, just to get him out there and get things rolling. Now, it's Washington, so they'll probably screw it up anyway. So let's not give them all the credit in the world for getting to this point without screwing it up. Because as we look at their biggest defensive addition, you could make a pretty good case that they screwed up big time here. Landon Collins signed with the Washington Redskins after four pretty solid seasons uh, with the, uh, well, five pretty solid seasons with the uh, New York Giants. Oh yeah, another talent, a part of the talent exodus in New York, Landon Collins. There are mixed opinions on Landon Collins. He's been effective at what he's done in uh, in his few seasons in the NFL. Uh, but a lot of people thought he was not worth top of market money. That's fair. But Washington did not appear to get the memo that the safety market has gone a little bit soft in the last couple of seasons because they signed him to a six-year, $84 million deal. There was only one other defensive back in the entire NFL, safeties and corners included, who signed a contract worth more than $50 million this offseason. That was Earl Thomas, who signed for four years and $55 million almost $30 million less than Landon Collins. They, I'm not sure who they thought they were bidding against, but they appear to have outbid them quite handily. So how concerned should we be about Washington? Again, I'm not, I'm not super concerned about this team. They're a lot like New York, probably a little bit closer um, to one of these teams where you're a little bit more in the middle, kind of wait and see. Uh, but I'm not super concerned about them, especially if they're going to be starting a rookie quarterback this year. As good as Haskins can be, I'm not sure I'm, I'm that worried about him at this point. And I, I wouldn't be concerned about him beating the Packers even late in the season. And then you kind of just let Washington get in their own way and uh, figure things out from there. So that is a look at all of the Packers 2019 opponents. What were your thoughts? Let me know. Who are you most concerned about? Shoot us a tweet, a Facebook message, or whatever. Let us know who you're looking forward to the most, who you're most concerned about in 2019. While I've got you here, I want to talk for a second about a little statistical research that I've been doing. Um, We do our own semi-advanced stats at the Power Sweep. Uh, It's kind of been a... I don't want to say a passion project, more of a potentially of interest only to me, but also potentially useful to other people type project doing these semi-advanced stats here. Uh, We've got a few things that we track on the website, things like usage rate and explosive plays and ball hawks and things like that, kind of custom stats that we've picked up from other places around the internet that are of use to us and aren't widely published. So we try to... uh, to carry the water on those metrics that we think are useful. I'm not uh, fully prepared to share all the research that I've done on this potential new stat here, but I do think it's interesting and wanted to share some of the work in progress stuff that I'm doing. Adjusted net yards per attempt is one of the passing metrics that is most closely, that most, how do I say this? That seems most correlated with a team's success. If your adjusted net yards per attempt is uh, is doing well, if, uh, if you're putting up good numbers in that metric, chances are your team is doing pretty well in the passing game overall. This is a number that, as you might be able to guess, is based on yards per attempt, but has a few tweaks in there. So while yards per attempt takes all of your throws and or divides all of your passing yards that you've gained, 
by all of the throws that you've made. Adjusted net yards per attempt tries to quantify the results of the play while also looking at your overall number of dropbacks. So it basically weights your yards, your touchdowns, and your interceptions against the amount of times that you've dropped back to pass. The entire formula is, let's see if I can do this off my top, off the top of my head because I haven't written it down. It's sack, or It's passing yards minus sack yards plus passing touchdowns times 20 minus interceptions times 45, all divided by passing attempts plus sacks. Why is that important? Well, for our purposes, I think it's interesting in looking at the other side of that equation. To accumulate passing yards, you need someone to catch the passes. And I've been wondering lately if there would be a way to quantify a receiver's results using some of the same adjustment metrics like weighting passes caught for touchdowns or weighting targets thrown towards a receiver that end up um, being intercepted. Because I think that's part of the picture too. Just accumulating a whole bunch of yards is, is fine, but you also want to be scoring touchdowns. But if throwing you the ball also generates a lot of interceptions, that seems like a problem too. So I've been looking for a way to do that. And I'm early in the process on this, but I've come up with a number called adjusted yards per target. This partly sprang from a discussion I saw among a couple fantasy football writers recently dinging Devontae Adams for his uh, yards per target. Adams gets targeted with the ball a lot, and he produces a fair bit too. But I think it's fair to point out that his yards per target is pretty low. He was targeted with 169 passes last year and produced just 8.2 yards per target. For comparison, a guy like Julio Jones, who led the league with 170 targets last year, produced 9.86 yards per target, almost a, a little over one and a half yards per target more than Adams. But Adams scored more touchdowns, and none of the passes that went Devontae Adams' direction were intercepted last year. Part of that is due to the kind of routes that he was running. Part of that is due to Aaron Rodgers being extremely cautious with uh, with his passes. But I think that's that's noteworthy. So, using this formula that's related to adjusted net yards per attempt, we've weighted the yards that he produced and the touchdowns he produced and the lack of interceptions. So while in the traditional metrics he averages 8.2 yards per target, his adjusted yards per target number is 9.74. Again, for comparison purposes, Julio Jones, who produced 1600 yards, almost 1700 yards on his 170 targets for a net or for a yards per target average of 9.86, only scored 8 touchdowns and had 3 passes thrown his direction interception, intercepted. As a result, His adjusted yards per target figure was 10.01, within a quarter yard of Devontae Adams. Still better, but a lot closer. And I think perhaps that's a better number to measure the overall contribution to the passing game. 
just for the sake of interest, I, I looked at the entire lineup of players in, in Green Bay who got passes last year. Well, I guess the top eight or so. After that, you got down to players like Lance Kendricks and Ty Montgomery who really didn't contribute significantly to the passing game anyway. And I was interested to find that Geronimo Allison had the highest adjusted yards per target figure of anybody on the Packers by a considerable margin. He averaged 11.43 yards or adjusted yards per target, partly because he had two touchdowns among 30 targets and 303 yards. I'm not quite ready to make a whole bunch of conclusions on what this means, nor am I fully ready to roll it out as a a full-on addition to our advanced stats library. But I thought it was interesting, and I wanted to share with you what I had learned on that so far. So take that for what it's worth. Just a little behind-the-scenes research there. I'm excited to share a little bit more in the near future about what we've been working on behind the scenes as far as advanced stats type stuff in 2019. So I've got for you on this episode. We do appreciate you listening in. Uh, If you like what you heard and want to support the show, the best way to do that is to leave us a review or rating, or both, on iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you listen. That does help more people find the show. If you want to take your support to the next level, the best way to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. That helps offset some of the costs and shows how much you value the program. And don't forget to check out our t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. If you have an idea for the show or just want to say hi, do reach out at thepowersweep.com on social media, or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We do appreciate everybody who takes the time to reach out. As always, every bit of feedback, every thought, every question you give us helps us further our mission of helping everyone become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.